We are uh, going to cover a lot of ground today. I don't want to frighten you. Uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover, and so we're going to go quickly and uh, then settle down a little bit. We're going to do Genesis 43.1 through 45.15. I'm obviously not going to read all of those verses because some of you like to eat meals and different things um, in between the evening and morning service. But we are going to cover that ground, but our text is really Genesis 45.1 through 15 because that is the climax of the account of the life of Joseph. Genesis uh, 43.1 is where we're going to get started. But of course, let me give you just a little bit of background again. Joseph was uh, the son of Israel, who was also named Jacob. Jacob was his birth name. Israel was his covenant name when God said, I am going to pass on the blessings to you. God said, you will no more be called Israel, you will no more be called Jacob, but Israel will be your name at Bethel. You remember, Bethel is a, the place where heaven meets earth, the place where God is. And when he met God, God changed who he was. And when God changed who he was, he changed his name to match. So he changed his name to Israel. Israel had 12 sons and one daughter. Uh, he had four wives or two wives and two concubines. And he had one who was his favorite, and that was Rachel. Now, as we've talked about before, um, when your family is a mess, it will have consequences for all of your children's families. Uh, uh, Israel, by his sins, messed up 12 different families underneath his family. Uh, It became a, a mess. He, of course, favored the children of his favorite wife. And, uh, of course, Benjamin, the secondborn, she died in childbirth with Benjamin. So Joseph was his pride and joy. He made Joseph a coat of many colors, set him apart as sort of the boss over his brethren. This uh, Joseph is sort of self-important and goes and gives himself the authority to go investigate. His dad likes that, and he makes him tattletale in chief. Now, Joseph goes out one day, upsets his brothers. Then he tells them about this dream that he's had where they all come and bow down to him. God had given him a vision of what was going to come to pass, and the brothers did not like it. A little ways down the road, they see him coming to check on them, and when they see him, they say, Behold, this dreamer comes. Let's kill him and see what becomes of his dreams. Joseph then is taken by them, thrown into a well. At the bottom of this well, he he is left to die originally until Judah... The great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of the Lord Jesus Christ decides we can really make a profit on him instead. So they sell him into slavery. He goes into slavery in Egypt where he works for a man named Potiphar, the police chief, the captain of the guard. He works for Potiphar and is built up so that even though he's a slave, he's the best slave in the house. He's the boss of the other slaves. Potiphar says, the only thing I think about is the food I put in my mouth. I make sure I eat and you take care of the rest of my business. But of course, things did not remain that way for long. Potiphar's wife fell for Joseph and decided to say, lie with me. Joseph, being a man of God, said, no, I will not sin against your husband. I will not sin against God. Potiphar's wife was very persistent, finally came, grabbed him by his shirt, pulled his shirt off. And Joseph ran away. That's what we ought to do when we see temptation, right? Run away. He runs away, but of course Potiphar's wife is very clever. 
She sees she's standing here with Joseph's clothes in her hand. And so she screams out and tells the people that he tried to rape her. He is then thrown into prison by Potiphar. Now, what was the punishment for attempted rape in the ancient world? Execution. Why was Joseph thrown into the pit instead of being executed? One reason. Potiphar knew Joseph's character. And although he could not just ignore what had happened, he knew Joseph was not deserving of death. And so he put him into the prison that was underneath his charge. Now, I've said this before. I've said it several times, but it bears repeating. I want you to live the kind of life that when someone accuses you of something, those who know you best don't believe it. I want you to live so above reproach that if somebody decides to slander you, they say, no, brother or sister so-and-so would never do that. That is a man or a woman of God. So although there may be some consequences, the consequences are curbed by the fact that those who know you have seen your character on display. I hope that you live like that. I hope you know some people that live like that, where if someone came and accused them of something to you, he would say, that's just not possible. That's the kind of man that Joseph was. A man, uh, a picture here of Jesus Christ. So Joseph then is thrown into prison. But in prison, he is again, it says, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him in slavery. The Lord is with him in prison. And in this prison, he is lifted up where he becomes the first trustee. He becomes the head of the prisoners until he comes and he meets two people, the butler and the baker of Pharaoh, who are both thrown into prison on apparently treason charges. They both have a dream. And their dreams explain what will happen to them. Joseph interprets their dreams for them, tells the butler in three days he will be back in Pharaoh's palace serving him again, and tells the baker in three days he'll be dead. The bird's picking at his carcass. Joseph says to the butler, remember me. And Joseph learned the lesson so many of you have learned. There are people who have very short memories when things start to go well for them. The butler forgot Joseph, but God didn't. So God waits until the perfect timing, and Joseph is called up to interpret Pharaoh's dream. Pharaoh's dream that means there will be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And Pharaoh says, there is no man as wise as you. You be in charge of it all. You will be the second in command in the kingdom. You will be beneath me only. And everyone in Egypt will bow the knee to you. Now this famine begins. There's seven years. There's plenty. And Joseph gathers up, gathers up, gathers up. And then when the famine comes, there's plenty of food in Egypt, but no food anywhere else in the world that they knew of. As this goes on, they start to get hungry in Canaan. The family of Israel starts to get hungry. At one point, they find out there's grain in Egypt, and Israel sends his sons to Egypt to buy food. There, they come to the person in charge of the food, Joseph. Joseph recognizes them, but they do not recognize him for lots of reasons. One, he'd shaved his face. Two, he is now substantially older. Three, it was the will of God that he not recognize him. Four, they were sure he was dead. 
Now, I, 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 this is just a, a little side note. This is free. And uh, if you, any of you talk to a homiletics professor, don't tell them I did this. Right? It's off to the side. Who does that make you think of? Joseph, I've told you before, is a type of Jesus. When Mary sees Jesus in the garden, she believes he's the gardener. Because she's sure he's dead. Because he's risen in power and glory. Joseph knows his brothers before they know him. Jesus knew you before you knew him. Isn't that a powerful truth? He knew you, he saw you, he provided for your needs before you knew who he was. When his brothers were still his enemy, he was storing up grain so his brothers wouldn't starve. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Powerful, beautiful, beautiful picture. Joseph, uh, the brothers who came, the ten brothers who came, tell him about his father being alive and his younger brother, Benjamin, being alive. And they tell him, of course, their other brother's dead. Which may not have, from their perspective, been a lie. They were probably sure that when the famine started, the slaves had died first. So Joseph tells them, I don't believe you, I believe you're spies. If you're really all brothers, go back and bring your youngest brother to me. I'm going to keep Simeon here. He does. He keeps Simeon. And they all go back. Israel says, no, I will not lose another son. Simeon is probably dead already. Joseph is dead. I could not stand to lose Benjamin too. You can't go. But the famine rages on. That brings us to our text today. Genesis 42, no, sorry, 43, verse 1. And it came to pass, and the famine was sore in the land. And it came to pass when they had eaten up the corn which they had brought out of Egypt, their father said unto them, go again, buy us a little food. (laughs) He comes and he says, go back and get us some food. Now, of course, he remembers the conditions, but things are getting desperate. And Judah spake unto him, saying, now I want you to remember Judah is the one whose idea it was to sell Joseph into slavery. Judah, although we didn't read it, is the mastermind of some, some extreme sin in chapter 38 especially. He, he is not a good man up until this point. But going through that experience, God has used that to change him, to make him fit to be the great ancestor of Jesus. So Judah, has a, it's a changed man. He says, the man did solemnly protest unto us, saying, ye shall not see my face except your brother be with you. If that will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy thee food. But if that will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said unto us, Ye shall not see my face, except your brother be with you. He says, He told us that the man in Egypt said, We cannot, we cannot go unless you send Benjamin with us. And Israel said, verse 6, Wherefore dealt ye so ill with me as to tell the man whether he had yet a brother? (laughs) Israel, you know, sometimes when you're upset, you start to get upset with people for things that they don't know anything. There's no way they could have possibly known. So Israel here, full of grief, says, Why did you even tell them you had a brother? (laughs) Judah's answer is very good. He said... The man asked straightly of us our state and of our kindred, saying, Is your father yet alive? Have ye another brother? 
And we told him according to the tenor of these words. Could we certainly know that he would say, bring your brother down? He seemed like he was just making conversation, so we made conversation back. We couldn't have possibly known that he would have caused us to bring our younger brother with us. But of course, we all know when you're upset, your brain doesn't work properly and you start to find fault. In the same sense as they started to feel guilt. You know, every good thing that happened to them, they saw as judgment from God. Remember, they had found the money in their sack that they had used to pay. And they said, God put it back in our sack to judge us for what we did to Joseph. He said, in verse 8, And Judah said unto Israel his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and thou and also our little ones. I will be a surety for him. Of my hand shalt thou require him. If I bring him not unto thee and set him before thee, then let me bear the blame forever. For except we had lingered, Surely now we had returned the second time. Judas says something very profound. He says, Let me go in his place. He says, Let me go in his place. Let me take him with me, but if something happens, I will bear the blame. I will bear his guilt. I will be his substitute. And so as he comes and he says, I will be his substitute, Judah foreshadows Judah's great, 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 great grandson. Judah offers to be the substitute for another and Jesus would be the substitute for another. We see in the book of Genesis really is the seed plot of the Bible. Everything important in the Bible is already found here in embryo. He says, for except we had lingered, surely now we had returned the second time. We've already had time to be there and back. He knows we've waited. And their father Israel said unto them, if it must be so now, do this. Take of the best fruits in the land in your vessels and carry down the man a little present, a little balm, a little honey, spices and myrrh, nuts and almonds. And take double money in your hand. And the money that was brought again in the mouth of your sacks, carry it unto him. Peradventure, it was an oversight. He says, take some gifts to him to try to butter him up. Take him the money that last time you paid that was back in your sack. And take him the money for this time. Take also your brother and arise. Go again unto the man. Israel saves that for last. He saves, take Benjamin for last. Because that's the one that breaks his heart. You know, he doesn't care about money. He doesn't care about gifts. But it's not until the very last moment that he takes Benjamin. Verse 14. And God Almighty give you mercy before the man, that he may send away your other brother and Benjamin. If I be bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. He says, and God Almighty, and El Shaddai be with you, give you mercy before the man. Now, El Shaddai is one of the names of God that's very popular in Genesis. It's uh, in Exodus, when he comes and speaks to him, he says, uh, when God comes and speaks to Moses, he says, 
By my name, Yahweh, I was not known to them, but by El Shaddai was I known to them. Now, what is El Shaddai? Well, El means God. El means mighty one. God is the normal word for God. Shaddai means breast. You say, well, that's a strange name for God, mighty breast. What does it mean? Every time it's used, it refers to God's covenant provision. It says, like a mother, like a child, gets everything that it needs from its mother. God is the mighty one that provides us everything that we could possibly need. So over and over again, El Shaddai is used when God is faithful to his promises and supplies all of our needs according to his riches and glory. So he says, I'm sending you away from your father, but may God nourish you and care for you like a mother would. May your heavenly father meet all of your needs in that way and give you grace before the man. Now, May God Almighty give you mercy before the man. Of course, Israel does not know the man is Joseph. He does not know that God has put the right man in place who will show mercy to them. He doesn't know that God has been working for 22 years to make Joseph the right man to give mercy. That's one of the marvelous things. When you pray today, God may have been working on the answer to that prayer for years. He knows what we need before we ask. And here he was. God has been answering this prayer. May El Shaddai give you mercy before the man. God's been answering that prayer since the day they betrayed their brother. When you come to Christ and you pray, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God has been preparing the way for you to receive mercy for 2,000 years. Longer than that. You know, 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on the cross in your place to make the way. But 3,500 years ago, Joseph stood in Egypt and rescued the divine line, rescued God's people so that Jesus could be born. And from the foundation of the world, God had a plan. What a marvelous thing. He says, if I'm bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. He said, what will be, will be. Uh, The similar thought, of course, if I perish, I perish. He said, if I lose my children, I'm going to lose them anyway. They'll either die here of famine, at least they have a chance going to Egypt. And the men took that present, and they took double money in their hand, and Benjamin, and rose up and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Um, At this point, Joseph was 17 when he left. He has now been in Egypt for 27 years, or 22 years, I'm sorry. So he's 39 years old. We know that Benjamin was born before Joseph left. So we know Joseph, uh, Benjamin is at least in his mid-20s, maybe older. It's kind of interesting that they sort of treat him like a commodity. But he was so precious to his father. And they all, they all obey him. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? That there's no thought of taking Benjamin. They won't do it without the blessing of their father. There's more, more to that, but we'll, we've got to move along. There's only so, so many minutes left. So would you jump down to chapter 43, verse 22? As we come along, they go back to Pharaoh, and they come and tell him. They said, and other money have we brought down in our hands to buy food. We cannot tell who put our money in our sacks. And he said, peace be to you. Fear not, your God and the God of your father hath given your treasure in your sacks. I had your money. And he brought Simeon out unto them. Joseph says, 
God has given you back that money. I had it. Now, he put it back, but he put it back as God's representative. He says, don't worry. And he begins this process of restoring his relationships with his brothers. If you go ahead and jump down then even to 44, 1 and 2. As they've had this big time together, they had this dinner where he invited them all to eat. Uh, he begins to confuse them a little bit by somehow setting them in birth order. He sets them at the table from oldest to youngest and give ben- gives Benjamin five times as much food as the rest of them. You imagine the dinner conversation. How did he know which one of us was the oldest? And he already begins to prepare. And they eat and they drink and they're merry with him. They have this appearance of fellowship. But Joseph is not ready to restore the relationship with them yet. They still don't know who he is. They don't even know that he speaks Hebrew. Because he is going to test them. Verse 44. I'm sorry, chapter 44, verse 1. And he commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put every man's money in his sack's mouth. He says, Give them their food, give them their money back, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the sack's mouth of the youngest, and his corn money. And he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. He says, Go. Give them their money back, give them their food, but when you load them up, put my silver cup in Benjamin's back. It's going to put the youngest brother in peril and see if they'll treat his brother the way they treated him or not. They're willing to sell him out for a little bit of money. How will they treat Benjamin now? You know, the Bible says, you shall know them by their fruits. They can talk a good game about having a change of heart. But Joseph says, I'll know what they are by what they do. And that's absolutely true. The Bible says that a good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. So he puts the pressure on to see what happens. Go down to verse 12 then. And he searched, the, the steward comes and says, where's the money? Where's the, sco- where's the cup? Where's the cup? And they say, none of us did it. Whoever did it will be your slave. We'll all be your slaves if any one of us did it. And he searched and began at the eldest and left at the youngest. He did that not, uh, not out of a, any kind of accident, but he starts with the oldest, and works his way down. And then when he comes to Benjamin's back, The cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And they rent their clothes and laid at every man his ass and returned to the city. And Joseph and his brethren, and Judah and his brethren came to Joseph's house, for he was yet there, and they fell before him on the ground. They came to Joseph's house where he was waiting for them, and they fell and bowed before him, exactly what he had predicted in his dream. And Joseph said unto them, What deed is this that ye have done? Wot ye not that such a man as I can certainly divine? He said, Don't you know that a powerful Egyptian nobleman like myself can tell the future and can tell what you've done? Of course, now it's a very big act. But in this moment, he's testing them. He's putting all the pressure on them to see what they'll do. He says, Judah said, 
What shall we say unto my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God hath found out the iniquity of thy servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also with whom the cup is found. He says, what can we do? God has found our guilt out. Now, what does he mean by that? He does not mean they actually stole the cup. means the way they treated Joseph, what they did to their brother. God has found our guilt. We are guilty. Do you know what it means to confess? If you, you confess your sins, what does that mean? It means to agree with God. See, a lot of our life we spend making justifications, saying, yeah, I did it, but it wasn't that bad. But when we confess our sin, it means we stand before God and say, yes, I agree with you. I am guilty. I do deserve your judgment. And that's exactly what Judah does here. He says, God has found our guilt out. We are guilty. We deserve everything coming to us. Not for stealing the cup, but for their sin. You want to know, what's the attitude of the heart that comes to Jesus. I am guilty, but you took my place. Judah here kind of plays both roles, of course, being a human. He comes and says, I'm guilty, just as he'd said, I'll take the place of Benjamin. Jesus took your place, so that if you come and say, Lord, I'm guilty, but I throw myself on your mercy, I have my faith in you, you'll be changed. But isn't it terrible? It says, the light came into the world, And men rejected the light because their deeds were evil. How often does God offer us forgiveness, but we would rather not agree with him that we need forgiveness? I mentioned last Sunday night, I think, or Wednesday night, maybe. How much sin is in your life because you allow it to be there? All of it. There's no temptation that's overtaken you except such as is common to man, but in every temptation, God makes the way of escape. The only that you may be able to bear it. If you're a Christian, every time you sin, it's because you chose something else over God. So Judah here shows that he's a changed man. And when he reveals that he is a changed man, Joseph responds. Because he's confessed and is willing to make restitution, the same as the prodigal son, Joseph reaches down and restores. Um, Judah gives a beautiful speech that really proves what he said. But now come down with me to 45.1. I hope you have time to read the rest of 44 this afternoon. 45.1 through 15 is what I really want to talk to you about. Joseph is going to explain how this has all happened. Then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him, and he cried, Cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him when Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. He said he could not control his emotions anymore, so he sent out all of the Egyptians. And now it's just Joseph and his brothers. Now, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11 that Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to endure pleasures of sin for a season. At this moment, 
Joseph chooses to be identified not with the palace in Egypt where he is the second in command, but with the covenant people, starved and poor. There's something about that. There's something about the way that God acts, the way that Jesus acts, where he came down to our level. Verse 2, and he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard. (laughs) He sends everybody out so they don't see him, but they can hear as he breaks into these loud, uncontrollable sobs. The emotion of finally seeing that his brother's hearts have been changed. That's what he's been longing for all this time. For 22 years, he's been begging God to change his brothers so they can have a relationship again. And here it is. And he can't handle it. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph. Doth my father yet live? And he told them. They'd already, they'd already told him his father was alive. And he says, is my father really alive? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. <laughs> troubled. A, the, the translation there is very light. The, you, you can imagine. Your dead brother is now standing there with your life in his hands. He's troubled. <laughs> Dread. The word troubled is actually the Hebrew word normally used for the pains of childbirth. Their stomachs fell out. And you can imagine. And what does Joseph do? This is so wonderful. You know, when you realize that you're a sinner, you realize your situation and you stand before God, your stomach falls out. You realize what you deserve from God. The prodigal son says, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. But what does Joseph do? Joseph said unto his brethren, come near to me, I pray you. And they came near. That alone, you know, Charles Spurgeon could preach on that for an hour, right? They came near. We could not come near to God. So he came down to us. He gave us nearness. He broke down the separation. But look at this. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, this is not a rebuke. This is him proving that he really is who he says he was. He's the only one that knew. I'm the one you sold into Egypt. I'm the same one. Now, therefore, be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves that you sold me hither. For God did send me before you to preserve life. He says, don't beat yourself up. Now, Before he would say that, they had to take responsibility. They had to confess. But he says, don't continue to beat yourself up because it was for a purpose. You didn't send me here. God sent me here. I wonder this morning, this is not a rhetorical question. I want you to raise your hand. How many of you can say that when the day you graduated high school, if you had been able to look forward to September 25th, 2016, that you would have guessed how your life would have turned out. Your health, your job, your marital status, where you live, whatever. You would have been able to guess how your life would turn out. I want everybody who knew how their life was going to turn out to raise their hands. Everybody look around. There are no hands. (laughs) So you are not here where you are today. You are not here this morning according to your plan. Isn't that encouraging? Where would you be if you had been according to your plan? But you are here today according to a plan. 
Sometimes you hear people say something ridiculous. Um, I hate, 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 hate listening to uh, people say uh, things like, I was an accident. There are accidental parents. There are no accidental children. <laughs> God has a plan. You are not here today by chance. You are not where you are in your life by chance. You were sent here by God to be his representative. If you're a Christian, you were sent here by God for the preservation of life. <laughs> Literally, you were sent here to be a lifesaver. Now, of course, again, we can't shake this Jesus-Joseph thing, can we? <laughs> Jesus said, I am sent by the Father. He said, I am come to seek and save that which is lost. Jesus came down. He was sent to rescue life. Joseph was sent to Egypt to rescue the lives of his brethren. You were sent to rescue the souls of the lost. So when somebody says something like, you know, I'm the only Christian at my work. Would you please pray that God would let me go somewhere else where I could be around some other Christians? No! God put you there on purpose, didn't he? He put you there as a life preserver. He didn't put you in the palace to become an Egyptian, but so through the powers of Egypt, you could reach people and save people for his glory. Joseph never forgot who he was. But how often? Oh, man, I'm just not where I thought I would be right now. You did not see any hands. Nobody is where they thought they would be. But God sent you where you are to preserve life. And I think we would be foolish if we thought that Joseph sitting in the slave caravan at 17 years old, thought, well, you know, God's probably got a big picture plan with all this. That's something that we can only understand in retrospect. You know? We never understand God's plan when it's happening. But when you look back on it, you say, wow, look at that. God sent me here to preserve life. That is your purpose, Christian. Your purpose is for the preservation of life. If you're here this morning and not a Christian, I know why you're here too. Look at this, I've just got it all. You are here so that God can preserve your life. <laughs> you are here so that through the confession of your sins and faith in the Lord Jesus, you can have your heart changed and can live forever. You are here because Jesus was sent to die in your place so that then he can send you out. What a glorious thing. God is stationing you, you know. The Bible says in uh, Acts that as many as were ordained to eternal life believe. And it's not the word ordained in the sense of uh, chose. It's the word ordained in the sense of stationed. Like a commander ordains a post for somebody. It says, God has ordained you. God has situated you in your post for the preservation of your life and the life of others. What a picture Joseph is. You know, you say, things aren't the way that I expected, but God sent you here. You are here on purpose. God may have sent you here kicking and screaming, but God sent you here. And here you are at this point in your life. You are here now. You are here where you are for one reason, because God has placed you here. So he says in verse 6, For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in the which there shall be neither earing nor harvesting. He says there's five more years where the whole process of growing will be futile. He said, And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Oh, a couple more things I need to mention. Posterity here is the word ordinarily translated remnant. Have you ever read in the fa about the faithful remnant through the ages? When um, Elijah 
goes against the prophets of Baal and then leaves afterwards. And he goes and he sits and he says, Lord, take my life. I'm the only one left. God says, no, you're not. I have preserved for myself a remnant. Down through history, the uh, Jewish nation, the nation of Israel, fell into sin and fell into sin and fell into sin. But God said, I never allowed there to be a time where there was not a faithful remnant. Truly, as we read, of course, in Isaiah, the only one, uh, in Isaiah, you read about the servant of the Lord. Sometimes the servant of the Lord refers to the entire nation of Israel. Sometimes it refers to the faithful remnant. But by the time we get to the early 50s, it refers only to the one true faithful remnant, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was pierced for our iniquities. He is the faithful remnant. He is the one that was allowed to come because there was a remnant in the days of Joseph. Throughout the ages of church history, there have been times where uh, people who preached the gospel were persecuted and uh, pushed underground. People that said salvation by faith alone through grace alone were pushed down. But Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There was never a time where there were not people who were truly saved by grace. There was never a time where true churches of God did not exist. What a glorious, powerful thing. There's always a remnant. God says, I will not fail. We could fail. But God says, I've sent you here to establish this remnant. I've sent you here that my truth will not fade. There will always be a light. There will always be salt. There will always be my power. I should also mention save is the word here uh, used of the ark. It is the ark was for the preservation of life, that the righteous would survive in the midst. Then who is the ark? Of course, we know the ark is a picture of Jesus, for the coming of Jesus. Verse 8, so it was not you that sent me hither, but God. When we get a little further uh, in a future week, we'll talk about this a little more, about how do we reconcile human freedom with God's plan. And that'll be a very deep, but... Right now, I just want to skim over that. I want to, I want to cover that up a little bit uh, so that we can make it through this text. But I promise in about three weeks, I won't be here next week, uh, in, about, so in about three weeks we'll talk about it. It said, And God sent me before you to preserve you of posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father, a father figure, an advisor to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Haste ye, and go up to my father, and say unto him, Thus saith thy son Joseph, God hath made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down unto me, tarry not. Who is the hero of the story of Joseph's life? Jesus. <laughs> you know, you look at it, when you imagine your own life, you often cast yourself as the hero. But as Joseph tells the story of his life, look at it. He says, God sent me before you. It was not you that sent me, but God. He hath made me a father to Pharaoh. God hath made me Lord of all Egypt. He knows who he is. He says in verse 10, And thou shalt dwell in the land of Goshen, and thou shalt be near unto me, thou and thy children, and thy children's children, and thy flocks, and thy herds, and all that thou hast. And there will I nourish thee, for yet there are five years of famine, lest thou and thy household and all that thou hast come to poverty. He says, I'll take care of you for these next five years, so you will not be ruined. 
And behold, your eyes see in the eyes of my brother Benjamin that it is your, my mouth that speaketh unto you. And ye shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen. And ye shall bring haste and bring down my father hither. Verse 14 and 15, this is it. We're, we're through. And he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. Can you imagine that reunion? They haven't seen each other in 22 years. But I want you to notice who initiates it. Joseph comes and he throws his arms around Benjamin. Verse 15, moreover he kissed all his brethren and wept upon them. And after that his brethren talked with him. I want you to notice something. I want you to notice the initiative. Joseph reaches out, hugs them, weeps on them for joy, and then they speak to him restoring a break that has existed since they could not speak peaceably unto him in chapter 42. You have been divided from God because of your sin. But if you come to him, he comes and he throws his arms around. The story of the prodigal son, he ran. But this morning, God wants to throw his arms around you. And then you can have a relationship with him again. Glorious, glorious thing. How'd you get where you are? You're here because God sent you here for the preservation of life. There is one purpose in this world, and that purpose is the proclamation of the gospel. So if you are where you are and you are not telling people about Jesus, you are wasting a plan that has been in the work for your entire life. You are where you are for the preservation of life. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. But in the same sense, if you have been going through all these difficult experiences and do not have a relationship with God yourself, you're wasting all of the things you've been through because it is for the preservation of life. You are where you are according to the master plan of the master God so he can be restored to you once again. As we stand and our musicians come forward, we're going to have a hymn of invitation and give you a chance to turn from your sin and trust in Christ this morning. If you recognize you're a sinner, you realize that Jesus is the one who died and rose again to save. This morning, you have the chance to say, Lord Jesus, forgive me a sinner, and he will change your heart, even now. He will show you his master plan for your life. As we say.